Hey folks, welcome to Footnotes. I'm your host, Jamar Tisby, along with Christina Button, bringing news and views to help you become a more informed civic participant, activist, and believer. In this episode, we talk about the NSARS movement and protests in Nigeria. Wilton Gregory as the first black U.S. cardinal to be. Voter suppression and what you can do about it and the White House strategy or lack thereof for the coronavirus pandemic. But first, my favorite part of the podcast because I get to hear directly from you, the reviews. We are at 373 reviews, which is up from 365 last episode. Thank you so much for taking the time to write a thoughtful review. And Christina, do we have a review to read for today? Yes, we do. Hello, guys. This review is from D.M. Combs. Two impactful and powerful voices. Jamar and Christina always bring truth, wisdom, love, and conviction with their own words. In a time when so much of what we hear from Christ followers is complacency or even political propaganda, it is so important to hear from spirit-led believers who bring the real gospel truths to our ears and hearts that pushes out of our complacency into justice-seeking actions. I am grateful and thankful to hear from Jamar and Christina, and as always, learn so much. Y'all are greatly appreciated and much valued. Doesn't that just warm your heart? (laughs) In all sincerity, I so much appreciate these reviews because it takes time, it takes effort, it takes intentionality. Oftentimes you're listening to a podcast on the go. You could be in the car, you could be vacuuming, you could be jogging. And then to take the time in the middle of whatever else you're doing and to log on, to write a thoughtful review and post it, uh, that does not go unappreciated. So we definitely appreciate the the reviews that you you all are giving. We're so excited uh, that you're you're listening and actively listening and participating. I'm thrilled, Christina, that folks are mentioning you because uh, we have been <laughs> we are we've been more consistent uh, with you here, and I think the show has been richer as a result of it. So thank you uh, very much for those reviews. Uh, One more announcement before we get to the news. We've got some big news coming from The Witness this weekend. The Witness is the nonprofit uh, that I helped start almost 10 years ago now. And these are probably our biggest announcements in the history of the organization. So you're going to want to stay tuned on Friday, October 30th and Saturday, October 31st. Of course, October 31st is Halloween. It's also Reformation Day, the five, uh, the anniversary of the Protestant Reformation uh, in 1517, and it is our Founders Day at the Witness, and it's typically when we make our big announcements for whatever you know sort of annual initiative that that we're doing. And you will not want to miss this. How can you tune in? Follow our social media platforms at the Witness BCC and at the Witness BCC both on Instagram and Twitter at underscore past the mic on Instagram and like us and follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash the witness BCC. That's facebook.com slash the witness BCC. Christina, anything else? That's it. On to the news. (music) 
Protests in Nigeria in SARS. Protests erupted in Nigeria initially after the killing of a young man from a group called SARS. SARS stands for Special Anti-Robbery Squad, and it is a unit within the Nigerian police force. Nigeria's president stated that he was determined to end police brutality and introduce reforms. His comment came days after a video was released of a man being killed by the police. SARS has been accused of corruption, including extorting money from individuals and their families, unlawful arrests, detainment, kidnapping, and murdering. The most targeted has been young Nigerian men. To note, young people make up 40% of Nigeria's population. There has been a growing number of solidarity to bring awareness and a cry to end SARS across the country and across the world. Dr. King's famous quote, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We should be concerned for Nigeria like it is our home. Black lives matter here in America the same way Black lives matter in Nigeria and within the African diaspora. Here are my thoughts. Even though we are in a state of emergency in our own country with the police brutality, specifically in 2020, has been extremely taxing this year. We as Black people of the African diaspora mourn, lament with our brothers and sisters in Africa, specifically Nigeria. I do not need to live in Texas or Arizona to mourn with those who have been impacted by police brutality. The same way we don't have to be residents of Nigeria to mourn with our brothers and sisters of the diaspora, to mourn the lives lost, the people who are still missing, and corruption from their government. We pray for justice. Dr. King said, we are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality tied in a single garment of destiny. We stand in solidarity with our brothers and sisters in the midst of a demand for change to live a just and safe life. Also, check the show notes to see how we can continue to bring awareness and support Nigeria in the NSARS protests. Jamar, why do you think it's so important for us to pay attention to what's happening um, as Black people in the United States uh, to what's happening in, in Nigeria right now? Thank you so much for that background, Christina. And you ask the right question. Why should we as Black people in the United States care about what's going on in Nigeria? Well, it's our family. And by that, I don't just mean in the abstract sense. I mean, many of us have very good friends with direct ties to the nation of Nigeria, including our good friend and friend of the show, Akemeni Uwan, whose family is from Nigeria. And so she has kept us up to date on some of the most relevant information, has given us folks who we can follow, who are on the ground in Nigeria uh, and can can look to for some reliable information. Information, And so you can follow uh, Akemini on Twitter at Sista, S-I-S-T underscore theology at Sista Theology and find some of that information there. But why is it important for us? Well, there's this phrase and, and the phrase is African diaspora, African diaspora. And, and it simply means uh, dispersed or dispersal. It means all people of African descent scattered around the world, the African diaspora. A similar and a related term is pan-African, P-A-N, pan-African, pan meaning all. And so the, the entire 
uh, uh, movement or, or uh, people of African descent in the continent of Africa and spread around the globe. Those are important terms because they indicate our connection with people of African descent all over the place, not just in our own home countries. And you can be part of the African diaspora and the Pan-African movement without having been born in a nation in Africa, without having ever lived in a nation in Africa, simply because you are a person of African descent. And to a, to a certain extent, we face some of the similar problems when it comes to white supremacy. And so uh, when, when, when we're talking about uh, sort of the connection that Black people have to other Black people across the globe, we can go back as far as you want. And so I think of the Haitian Revolution. Uh, it happened on the island that was then known as Saint-Domingue and what is now known as Haiti. And it was the first successful Black overthrow of an imperialist government where black people then took over the government. And so there were people across the globe, but especially in North America and the United States, who got word of the Haitian Revolution and were inspired by it, gained courage by it and motivation by it because of their connection to sisters and brothers in another place on another country. And even after the Haitian Revolution, you can move forward. Let's just jump to the 20th century. Many of you listening are familiar with the Pan-African flag. It has the colors red, black, and green on it. That was uh, composed with Marcus Garvey's Universal Negro Improvement Association. And UNIA, for short, was specifically designed to unite Black people, then called Negro people, across the world. So Marcus Garvey himself was from Jamaica, um, immigrated to the United States, spent a bunch of time in Harlem. And he was very cognizant of the similar struggles that Black people faced all over the world. And so he came up with this flag to represent all African people, the African diaspora, the Pan-African movement. And you can move on to the civil rights and the black power era. It's so interesting that Malcolm X, after he split with the Nation of Islam, very quickly formed another organization called the Organization for Afro-American Unity, or the OAAU. And don't let the name fool you, Afro-American Unity. Um, he was explicitly trying to connect black people in the United States to other black people around the world. So according to Black Past, the website, it was a secular institution that sought to unify 22 million non-Muslim African Americans with the people of the African continent. And the OAAU was modeled after the Organization of African Unity, and that was a coalition of African nations that were trying to provide a unified political voice for Black Africans on the continent. And then the website on Black Past goes on to say that the OAAU was designed to encompass all peoples of African origin in the Western Hemisphere, as well as those on the African continent. It had the pro, uh, basic unity program and uh, basically was, was trying to find common interest with Black people across the globe. And now, even in the 21st century, we are attempting to be cognizant of the struggles of Black people all over the globe, and even our own story at The Witness, we are called a Black Christian Collective, 
And we transitioned from using the term African-American to black precisely to highlight this pan-African, African diasporic community. And so African-American pertains particularly to uh, people of African descent born in the United States. But black is more encompassing. It encompasses people of African descent all over the world. And so we were so we are so blessed at the witness to have people from uh, the the UK, from South Africa, from Nigeria, from many places outside of the United States who are tuning in to our content. And we want them to be included too. We want them to be part of the collective too. And so we call ourselves a black Christian collective rather than an African American Christian collective, although both terms have their value. And the last word I'll say on this is the NSARS movement, it's so interesting that right now, all over the globe, it seems, the movement for justice and the movement against white supremacy so often comes as a result or in reaction to anti-black police brutality. And so we know here that the protests and uprisings in 2020 around uh, George Floyd, around Breonna Taylor and their murders came at the hands of police and the brutal, deadly use of police power by the state. And now we're seeing the same thing in Nigeria. And so anti-black police brutality is sort of the, the, the issue that kind of breaks the dam. But then there's this flood of other issues from generational poverty, undereducation and lack of uh, job opportunities, healthcare, all of these things we find so much in common. And I think the reason we find so much in common with other black people across the globe is that we are united in the struggle against white supremacy, which although the particular histories and contours vary from place to place, the general principles and the oppression that white supremacy brings remains the same. And so we ally with our brothers and sisters in Nigeria, particularly in the NSARS movement, and we say with them to NSARS. First Black U.S. Catholic Cardinal appointed by Pope Francis. Pope Francis named 13 new cardinals on Sunday, including Washington, D.C.'s Archbishop Wilton Gregory. He will become the first Black U.S. Cardinal. CBS article quotes, The advancement of Archbishop Gregory comes after calls for racial justice have increased, shifting the focus and conversation about race in the U.S. By naming Archbishop Wilton Gregory as a cardinal, Pope Francis is sending a powerful message of hope and inclusion to the church in the United States. Archbishop Jose H. Gomez, the president of the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, said in a statement, Ours is a task and the privilege of the advancing the goals that were so eloquently expressed 57 years ago by such distinguished voices on that day, Wilton Gregory said during a mass commemorating the 57th anniversary of the march in Washington in August. He added that men and women, young and old, of every racial and ethnic background are needed in this effort. 
Wow. Um, for me, representation matters in a world that was uh, built on elevating whiteness. We always say how much representation matters uh, in the people we see um, that hold certain titles. It matters because it says that little black and brown boys can one day grow up in whole positions of this nature. And yes, we are still doing the first black in 2020. Actions like this should have never taken this long. Uh, it should have not taken this long to recognize that we as black people are capable and qualified of holding positions like this. And I say we as a collective and a member of the black community bearing witness to black history in the midst of that we are still fighting for the world to see our humanity as black people, which is why this position for Archbishop Gregory is so necessary. This position gives him the opportunity to speak to injustices that are happening in America, in D.C., and bring them to the nation's forefront as we continue to seek justice for everyone. So why now? Why is this important for the Catholic Church, Jamar? For all the reasons you just named, Christina, took the words right out of my mouth. I mean, representation is vital because when we see ourselves represented somewhere, then it communicates to us as racial and ethnic minorities that maybe we can be there too. Now, we don't want to take this too far because so often uh, the exception of exclusion proves the rule of exclusion, right? So so right. we've had uh, our first black president, but, but he so far is the only one out right. of 45 so far. And so even right. to see ourselves represented in the highest elected political office in the land doesn't necessarily mean it's accessible to a whole bunch of folks. Add on top of that, the, the monumental amount of almost flawless effort that you have to have to become a first, right? So, so Wilton Gregory has been a priest since his 20s, I believe. So we're looking at like four decades or more um, of service. And within that, he's had to conduct himself in a way that was virtually unassailable to the people who would make decisions as to his placement and promotions, right? And so you have all this pressure on you as a Black person, uh, not just to do the job, which is, you know, whatever description is written on paper, whatever your white peers have to do, but you've also got to do it in such a way that you represent your entire race. And it's not fair, but that's how people are viewing you. And so for him to have labored decades in the Roman Catholic Church in the United States, which is overwhelmingly white, although there's plenty of, there are plenty of black Catholics um, around the U.S. And, and certainly around the world, uh, it, it's, it's a monumental feat just to be um, sort of chosen as a cardinal. It's a very small number of people, I think like 150 or 200 around the globe for millions and millions of Catholics. And um, so that in and of itself is an accomplishment. But to do that as a black person in the United States is obviously very difficult because we're in 2020 and we're finally seeing the first black U.S. cardinal. Right. Um, I mentioned this on footnotes uh, because I think, you know, it's, it's important for like um, religious history, for black history, but also some longtime listeners will know this. Um, most of my schooling has been in Catholic schools. And so K through eight, as well as college, 
was Catholic education for me. And I really appreciate it. I mean, the Catholic Church has plenty of problems, um, uh, as, as, as most folks know. But I appreciated the high emphasis placed on scholarship and intellectual pursuits that many Catholic schools have. And I appreciate the Catholic social tradition. Um, I've said this in various places, but I really got my start in racial justice um, through Catholic social tradition and the Center for Social Concerns at the University of Notre Dame, where I did all these service projects that put me face-to-face and on the front lines of some of the most important justice issues of our day, including poverty and racism. And so it was through experiences like that, uh, partly, that I end up where I am today. And we're talking about Black First, and and I even wrote about um, the first Black priest in the United States uh, in The Color of Compromise, uh, my first book. And uh, it's a priest named Augustus Tolston. And he had to go all the way to Rome to go to seminary because Catholic seminaries in the United States were segregated by race and wouldn't let him in. And so he literally had to go to another country and another continent to get his education, to become a priest, to finally be uh, a priest in the United States. And so I think this is important for a whole host of reasons, not least of which is that Wilton Gregory is entering into this very prominent role, this, this role of the upper tier of leadership in the Roman Catholic Church in a time of great racial upheaval especially and particularly in a time of the rise and the flowering even of Christian nationalism. And I've talked about Christian nationalism extensively before. If you want to read more about it, read Taking America Back for God by Andrew Whitehead and Samuel Perry, two sociologists. But, but, but Christian nationalism is this fusion of a form of religion along with political priorities. And what we saw in the late 1970s, really on up to the present day, is this melding of voting blocks that cross denominational lines. And this is especially important in the issue of abortion, um, because evangelicals and Catholics have sort of come together uh, in their opposition to Roe v. Wade and to abortion in general. But that hasn't always been the case. Uh, Throughout much of the 20th century, white evangelicals viewed abortion as strictly a Catholic issue and even went so far as to say that basically because it was a Catholic issue, it was an issue that evangelicals weren't going to get involved in. Uh, That started to change in the early to mid-70s and especially uh, afterwards. But, But I think it's important that we think about this term Christian nationalism because we often say white evangelicals and cite their racism, their politics, their problems. But really, it's broader than that. And so Christian nationalism speaks to this coalition of people claiming Christianity that actually crosses denominational lines. And so it includes evangelicals, it includes Catholics, it even includes mainline Christians, And so it's really not just evangelicals or white evangelicals that we're talking about. It's Christian nationalists that we're talking about. And that crosses all kinds of other barriers, because what this is really about is uh, a cultural and a political identity more than a Christian or theological identity. So 
I pray for Wilton Gregory because he's going to be up against that, especially he's, he, he resides in Washington, D.C. So he's going he's gonna to see all that politics up close and personal, especially in an election year. Uh, but I think that's partly why the time is now and, and really is long past. But we congratulate Wilton Gregory. It's a big move for the Catholic Church. It's a big move uh, for U.S. religion in general, and uh, we'll see what comes of it. Alabama curbside voting. The Supreme Court has blocked curbside voting in Alabama, a ban that will impact voters with disabilities and also impact voters who leaving the house due to COVID-19 could be a devastating blow to their health. An NPR article states several at-risk voters challenged the ban at the beginning of May. After a three-day trial, federal district court ruled the ban on curbside voting violated the Americans with Disabilities Act, and that a policy allowing but not requiring counties to implement curbside voting was a reasonable accommodation under the law. A federal appeals court upheld the ruling and the state appealed to the Supreme Court to block the lower court decision from going into effect. Now the high court has granted the state's request for a stay of the lower court orders, end quote. Counties in Alabama sought to allow curbside voting, again, a method that would allow voters to vote from their vehicles so they wouldn't come into contact with large groups of people increasing the odds of possible infection of COVID-19. Curbside voting would allow them to do that safely. The Secretary of State's decision prohibited the ability to vote curbside. The arguments for the ban have been that it is not officially authorized by the state and also that votes could be compromised. Additional poll workers would be needed and additional equipment. One of the plaintiffs in the case that argued earlier against the ban for the ban to be lifted is Howard Porter Jr., a black man in his 70s. He has Parkinson's and he has asthma. In one stunning statement he made directly to the district court, Porter said, So many of my ancestors even died to vote. And while I don't mind dying to vote, I think we are past that time. Wow. Wow. Um, yeah. Wow. Yeah, we should not be there. <laughs> Isn't that so? Um, Death is yeah. on the line to, to vote. Right. Yeah. Like, he's willing to do that, but we should not be there in 2020. Um, wow. Yeah, I, I really had to sit with that. His quote. Um, yeah, that was... That was hard. <laughs> yep. um, for, for me, um, as taxing as 2020 has been, I feel like we should be making life easier for people to vote, especially um, under the current of, of the current circumstances of COVID-19. Um, anything that makes it harder for people to vote is voter suppression. Uh, polling should be easier, not harder. Um, I have dear friends and family who have relied on curbside voting this year. Um, the pride we as Black Americans feel in placing our vote um, to go out and effect change. Um, as Mr. Porter stated in the article, 
I quoted from NPR, uh, our ancestors literally died to vote. The safety of being able to vote in a year where we are trying to stay safe, trying to wear masks, trying not to catch COVID, um, just adds um, an added level of undue stress. Even though absentee has always been an option, people want the insurance and safety that their vote is counted and they won't catch COVID. And they can see with their own eyes that their ballot was counted without having to get out of the car. Wow, Jamar, like, wow. I mean, this this story has been uh, going on since May that they've been trying to um, get this ban down. Uh, what what are your thoughts on this? Um... Woo! <laughs> Sorry for the volume. I read this, I don't know, one morning, whatever, when this story came out on NPR. And... I was just incensed because there's no good reason. There's no good reason for this decision. Right. Like yeah. it, it, it's, it's on some farcical notion of voter fraud and it, it, it could disrupt the integrity of the vote. No. Right. Study after study after study has shown mm-hmm. this is not a problem. This is right. voter fraud, voter um, uh, ballots, you know, being thrown out, all those things is not a problem in the way that the GOP is saying it, right? The, the problem right. with voting is voter suppression. Mm-hmm. So, so what also was galling about this particular decision is that the justices in support of it didn't issue an explainer. Right. Yeah. They, 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 they handed out the ruling and gave no explanation for it. And mm-hmm. this explanation went against several lower court rulings. Right. So, so it brought to mind that chilling quote that you read that this, this black man is literally willing to put his life on the line as far as, you know, he might catch a virus that could end up fatal in order to exercise his right, his right his right mm-hmm. to vote, and why are we still putting our lives on the line to vote? But in addition, it brought up all of these issues with the Supreme Court and having mm-hmm. this conservative majority, which shouldn't in and of itself be chilling, but the way it's operating around voting issues and voter suppression has not been helpful, <laughs> to put it lightly. Um, yeah. So, 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 yeah, it was galling to me. And we have been, as Black people, fighting so long for this mm-hmm. basic right to vote for, in the midst of a pandemic, the highest court in the nation to rule that, no, you, you, you can't vote curbside. By the way, right. I, 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 I voted early and, and there was a lady in front of me who, I don't know if she was disabled. She had a cane and she was very clearly and visibly limping and she had to sit down twice in a line that only took us maybe maybe 10 minutes to Mm. to wait in before we got to the voting booth and i can't i wish she'd had the option to just drive through you know uh some sort of accommodation and this ruling just seems so beyond anything that's reasonable and, and based on such specious, specious uh, uh, reasoning. And like I said, 
it speaks to the composition of the highest court in the land. So many of our civil rights battles gained some sort of provisional victory, or at least we made steps in the right direction because we brought cases all the way to, to the Supreme Court and justices ruled in favor for black civil rights. And on issues like that, uh, I'm concerned, especially as we record this right now, uh, we will, they, the, the Senate is in the midst of ramming through the Amy Coney Barrett confirmation to make her the next justice on the Supreme Court of the United States so that by folks, by the time folks listen to this, we'll have another, a new, another new <laughs> Supreme Court justice literally days, days before the presidential election. And of course, um, it's been in the headlines for, for weeks now, um, ever since Ruth Bader Ginsburg died and they, uh, the Republican Party almost immediately nominated Amy, Amy Coney Barrett for this, um, this spot that, uh, you know, Merrick Garland back in 2016 um, was, was not allowed to have a hearing because that was an election year. And they, uh, the, the Democratic Party brought his name up nine months before the election. But for mm -hmm. Mitch McConnell, that was too soon. And yet here we are, mm -hmm. less than a week out from a national election, and all of a sudden it's not too soon. And of course, the history goes back longer. I mean, it speaks to a bigger issue, right? Like right. Democrats um, early in the 2010s during Obama's administration changed the rules so that um, appointments to high courts, not the Supreme Court, but, but high courts in the land, they changed it from uh, you had to get 60 votes in the Senate to a simple majority. Um, that, had, that was a double-edged sword. Uh, Democrats did it to get some of their nominees approved, and that was really in the face of Republican stonewalling. I mean, this was the tactic by the GOP, which was to simply uh, obstruct and oppose anything, anything Obama proposed. Um, this was stated by GOP leaders, and so this was a way, this changing of the vote uh, count, how many votes you needed to confirm someone, that was a Democratic uh, response to try to get around it. But then Mitch McConnell actually takes that rule and expands it to Supreme Court appointments. So now you don't need 60 votes to confirm a Supreme Court candidate for justice. You need just a simple majority, which right now in the Senate, the GOP has the numerical majority. And regardless of what the Democrats want or who the, more importantly, who the Democrats in the Senate represent across the country, Republicans can just ram this through. And uh, I was reading earlier that this is one of the very few Supreme Court appointments that, that um, is happening without any bipartisan support, without the, the minority party um, voting in favor at all. And so that just tells you so much about the partisanship that we're facing. Um, it's not just at the Supreme Court. These appointments have been made in the courts at all levels. Uh, oftentimes these are lifetime appointments. So we're going to feel the effects and the reverberations long after this particular administration yeah. is gone. So it's just a heavy day and it's heavy news. Mm -hmm. And the only thing I can yeah. say... <laughs> is if you go to the polls, uh, working or voting or observing, and you see 
any form of voter suppression, you can do something. Call the National Voter Protection Hotline. The number is 833-336-8683. The National Voter Protection Hotline, 833-336-8683. If you see voter suppression happening, say something. Jamar, a spokesperson for the White House, did a interview and he had something interesting to say about the corona battling the coronavirus. Listen in. So here's what we have to do. We're not going to control the pandemic. We are going to control the fact that we get uh, vaccines, therapeutics, and other mitigation. Why are we going to get areas the because, pandemic? Because it is a contagious virus, just like the flu. Yeah, but why not it's make efforts to contain it? Well, we are making efforts to contain it. By running all over the country, not wearing a mask? Yeah, that's what the vice president is doing. We can get doing. into the back, back and forth. Let, let me just say this. is What we need to do is make sure that we have the proper mitigation factors, whether it's therapies or vaccines or treatments, to make sure that people don't die from this. But to suggest that we're going to actually quarantine all of America, I know lock down our account. No saying that. Well, that they are. <sighs> all right. So... <laughs> I just want people to know what is happening as far as leadership or the lack of it from this White House in the midst of the most widespread and one of the deadliest pandemics in our nation's history. Now, you have to listen closely. Uh, this is Mark Meadows, who was speaking on behalf of the Trump White House. He's, he's one of the spokespersons there. He's saying, essentially, we're not going to try to prevent the spread of the virus. As an administration, they want to put all their chips on developing a vaccine. And that's it. Which is absolutely frightening because it says that in the meantime, the virus can spread virtually unchecked except for the action at the state and local level and the initiative of individual people in America. And so I thought that was a chilling interview, a chilling quote, because it's almost explicitly saying that the White House has virtually given up on encouraging people to wear masks, encouraging people to socially distance. Um, they will not look at perhaps closing down or restricting business activities in order to prevent the spread of the virus. Instead of doing that, what they want to do politically is count on these corporations to come up with a vaccine in time enough to help the, the, to help make the president look good, basically. But even if we got a vaccine tomorrow, it would be months before it was available on a widespread basis to the general populace. First, it would go to the people in the most acute need. And so this could be elderly people. Um, this could be people in per particular jobs. And then it would go out to the rest of us. That's only if we can afford it, of course. And that's only if we have supplies for this, which would have to go to tens of millions of people in our nation alone. 
And who knows what the demand is like? I mean, there's going to be demand worldwide. And so to put to 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 bet entirely on a vaccine as the solution to the 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 pandemic and to prevent the spread of the virus is it speaks of it, it feels like a culture of death because to me it essentially says well if you catch the virus good luck uh, but we're not really doing anything to to curb the spread of it from the White House now don't get me wrong there there's been plenty of leadership elsewhere and plenty of people in this nation have taken it upon themselves to act responsibly but 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 you have people in Mike Pence's close circle, the vice president's close circle, and, and Mike Pence is the one in charge of the White House Coronavirus Task Force, and you have people right around him who have the virus, and he's yeah. not stopping his campaign activities. He's not quarantining. He's very rarely wearing a mask, even. And, and, and just to see the vice president wear a mask is like, oh, wow, that's remarkable. Right. It shouldn't be. Yeah. It shouldn't be. Like, we're just so caught up in this cycle of flabbergasting news <laughs> that we've become numb to it. And, and, and so many of these segments on, on footnotes are just to pause, zoom out for a second, and, and actually name what's happening here. We do not have a White House or an administration or a coronavirus task force that is really tackling the spread of the virus and trying to prevent its spread. Rather, what they're trying to do is bank on a vaccine, which we don't know when it'll be there, we don't know how effective it'll be, we don't know how much it'll cost, and we don't know when the general populace will have access to it or if they'll have access to it. And that's the leadership here. So all of that to say, <laughs> when you vote, Understand, this is not simply about political difference or partisan divides. This is about our health, our safety, and even our very lives. That's it for this week. Remember to tune into The Witness on October 30th and October 31st for some big announcements that we want you to be a part of. Also, you can like my personal author page on Facebook. That's facebook.com forward slash Jamar Tisby one, facebook.com forward slash Jamar Tisby and the number one. I'm also on Instagram at Jamar Tisby and Twitter, both at Jamar Tisby and follow Christina at Black Women Plant Seeds on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Remember, you can contact us via email at footnotespod1 at gmail.com. That's footnotespod and the number one at gmail.com. Thanks to our production assistant and co-host, Christina Button, our producer, Joshua Heath. Footnotes is part of the Witness podcast suite. Check out thewitnessbcc.com for more great content. Thanks for listening. Until next time, this is Footnotes. Footnotes.